Hello, everyone, and welcome to Space Junk, a weekly podcast dedicated to the amazing hobby of amateur astronomy. Each week, we'll bring you interesting and fun discussions with an eye towards providing you with the latest information and advice on the tools, gadgets, software, and techniques for maximizing your enjoyment of the night sky. Your hosts are Tony Darnell from DeepAstronomy.Space and Dustin Gibson from OPT Telescopes, a world leader in telescopes and accessories. All right, everybody, we're going to go ahead and get started. I have been recording this whole thing all along anyway, so who knows what might end up on the podcast. So, but I want to welcome you guys back to Space Junk. We are here, as we are every week, talking about all things uh, amateur astronomy and things up in the, in the sky. We would, we would like to get you motivated to look up. And so each week we just sit around and we talk about things that are fun for us with people who are fun to talk to. And today our guest is Phil Plate, who, you know, sometimes you get guests on your podcast. And you have to kind of give people a little back on what they do, but I'm pretty sure Phil, most of you have heard of Phil Plate. He is the also known as the bad astronomer. He has been a blogger, a writer, uh, his TV personality. He has been on all kinds of social media platforms, and I've been following him for years. And he's also written a book called Death from the Skies, which I also have a copy of. And so I'm really excited about today's podcast because I'm going to get to talk with somebody whom I have been following for quite some time. So welcome to our humble little podcast, Phil. Thanks. Nice to be here. Yeah, and you are in Boulder, Colorado. I just got to say this to you because I was, I remember when you moved there, I was living in Boulder. I lived in Boulder for 30 years. And, oh, wow. Uh, I, I worked Why'd at, you uh, leave? I, well, I got a job at the dark. That's, yeah, that, I, my, my, my wife asked me the same question. Um, <laughs> but I was, uh, I, I got a job at the dark energy survey, so I moved to the University of Illinois, and that was. Oh, uh, nice. Yeah, well, no, <laughs> it was not as nice as Colorado, but it was the job was good though, so that was nice. Well, I believe but, Shield uh, took that over in um, in uh, the Avengers movie, as I recall. It opens with a the joint dark energy mission. That's right. I'm, yeah. I was like, I'm like immediately launching into like you know really trivial nerdy stuff. Sorry about that. <laughs> yeah, and that's great because I know just the scene you're talking about, and I remember thinking, wow, the dark energy survey is very similar to that. So yeah, it was yeah, uh, and, yeah it was, and, that uh, was JDEM, and yeah, the dark energy survey is different. Close yes. enough for me to make the joke. So, yeah, right, exactly. <laughs> and and derail the podcast like in one minute. So <laughs> not a personal record of mine, but I'm okay with this. Good. And suddenly we are now freeforming. So good. There um, it is. So the, uh, but yeah, so, uh, and I worked at the high altitude observatory there at NCAR for quite a while. And so uh, when it was funny because I just was hoping as you were coming into Boulder that I might, that our paths might cross, but unfortunately that wasn't to be. So uh, I, I, you've been there for, for quite a while now. Boulder is a beautiful place. I just want to talk about Boulder for a little bit, folks, because <laughs> it is a highly scientific community there's lots of really cool things going on there and it is a wonderful place to live it's very beautiful and uh i miss it a lot so anyway yeah welcome. you know per capita this is a sciencey place um it, i yeah, think there are a hundred thousand folks here yeah there's uh, at nist i'm uh, the national institute of um standards and technology i think it's science that's and technology better? now maybe science it's standards technology. and technology yeah, used to be standards i think they it changed be, it that's why i'm confused you, i'm giving right, a talk a, there tomorrow in fact as we're recording this um, and, and you know, that's there, uh, uh, NCAR is there, the national center for atmospheric research, uh, uh, uh Southwest research Institute, which is the, the group that 
built uh, Dawn, the asteroid mission, and New Horizons, which went past Pluto, and MU-69, uh, you know, and, and on and on. You know, the Ball Aerospace, where they built Hubble, that's how I actually came here. They were, they were building an instrument on board Hubble, and I had to come out here to help calibrate it. And I was only out here for a short time, but I looked around. It was like, yeah, yeah, yeah I can, I can live here. And, <laughs> yeah, and the list goes good. on and on. There's a lot of cool places here. Yeah, so it is. It, it is a wonderful place if you ever get a chance to visit, folks, because it's. Uh, uh, if you if you're a science nerd like we are, it's definitely. And the night skies are amazing. They're just gorgeous there, especially if you get up to the foothills just a little bit. You get really nice dark skies. Okay, well, well today not where I am unfortunately. Anyway, I'll stop interrupting go? oh, okay. you. Go ahead. <laughs> Well, when I, when I I used to just have to go up to Chautauqua to get dark skies. Do you have to go further up now or do you have to go further away? Well, I live in the country in Boulder County. So I'm I'm pretty I'm I'm not like really far from Boulder, but far enough out in the country, so it's a little secluded out here. But I'm surrounded by other towns. There are just uh, a bunch of small towns all around here. And so, you know, when I look to the south, my light dome is pretty bad. Um you know, it's like, oh, there's Orion. Yay. Uh, but other than that, it's a <laughs> maybe little the tough. big dipper. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Looking north is better. But, you know, there's not much in the north to look at. You know, I really want uh, clear and, and dark skies to the south and the west. And that's a little bit tougher. Yeah, I suppose you have to maybe just head about maybe 30 minutes, 45 minutes west uh, for a while. You can get up some decent dark skies, but you're right. There's yeah. there's there's cities everywhere. There's cities all around. There's Denver and south and and Fort Collins to the north. So there's all kinds of, you know, yeah, it's hard to get away. Areas. You have yeah. to get out in the mountains. And once you get out in the mountains. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Very dark skies. It's really amazing. Yeah. And the uh, stars cast a shadow. I mean, it's just. Unbelievable how well that's how that's how bright they are to me. Okay, well we've got a topic today, Phil. Can we can we now go to we it? Do? Or do you do? Okay, good. Thank who, you. Who cares? Who needs it? Okay, that's right. We're gonna <laughs> stream of consciousness, folks. That's what we're doing here today. Astronomy, stream of consciousness. You have with your blog and through a lot of your science communication, one of the themes that you have always uh, had with your science communication is either debunking myths or, you know, bad, bad science, pseudoscience, you've always, you know, started uh, your, at least the early times you were doing your communication with that kind of content. And then you wrote your book, Death from the Skies, uh, which dealt with real life dangers in the universe, right? I mean, there are things out there in the universe that are not on this planet that could actually hurt us, isn't there? Yeah, uh, enough to write a book about. <laughs> yes. So, so that's where I'm literally yeah, that, right. Yeah, that, that's right. And I guess as what would be, what are some of the things that worry you uh, about dangers to earth and its inhabitants? Well, I like to be careful about this because um, it's easy to make a list of dangerous things and it, they can be as simple as, you know, the vacuum of space, mostly space is empty. And so uh, it's not hospitable to life. And if you're too close to a star, it's too hot. Uh, it's too cold in the depths of space. There are all kinds of things that can that can kill you. Uh, and there are a lot of things that can, you know, th those are passive ways, but there are active things out there too. There are stars that blow up and uh, you know, active galaxies, black holes gobbling down matter. Uh, so there's a lot of stuff out there that is dangerous. But the the, the place where I want to be careful is, you know, most of these aren't anything to worry about. The odds of, you know, a, a black hole getting close enough to the earth to rip you apart are 
for all intents and purposes, zero. Um, the the over the lifetime of the universe, even getting a star, a normal star, to pass close enough to our sun to affect the orbits of the planets is incredibly small, and uh, black holes are only a small fraction of the total number of stars. So you don't have to worry about a lot of these things. And I and I say that because a lot of folks do. They there's a thing called cosmophobia. This is a real thing where people are terrified of this sort of topic. And I get email from these folks, and this is a you know, it's a serious mental health issue for them. And so I, I like to be careful and say, you know, this, this isn't something you need to worry about. Most of these things will never happen even in the next trillion years. On the other hand, <laughs> um, the, the two things that concern me, and I, I use that word carefully too, because worry is like, you know, I fret about them and I don't fret about these things. I'm just, eh, think about them, are asteroid impacts and big solar storms. Um, and, and mostly because these are things that we know happen. They happen on time scales that are something we should be thinking about uh, as far as uh, civilization is concerned. You know, I don't have to worry about something that's not going to happen for a trillion years. On the other hand, if something's going to happen in the next hundred, hmm, that's something I should be thinking about. And, uh, both of those asteroid impacts and solar storms are things that we should be thinking about. Yeah, I was I was going to say, you know, there was probably this one dinosaur just like you that's like, you know what, guys, like it's really not something to worry about. And uh, I Until don't, it was. I don't know that it didn't, yeah, it didn't <laughs> yeah. work out too well for them. You know, I think, <laughs> especially like you're saying, the solar storms, that that thing, that's what I think is really probably most concerning. Right. That's the most immediate threat because that can pop up. It, yeah. Now. Right now. Um, yeah. It's um, asteroids are sexier as a topic, right? There's been blockbuster movies about them uh, that, you know, aren't very good movies, but, uh, uh, but you know, when you have Bruce Willis saving oh, the man, day, you that's... You didn't like Armageddon? Really? Um, no. <laughs> <laughs> I'll just, I'll put it that way. Um, <laughs> but moving on, um, making my eyelid twitch here thinking about that movie. Um, the... Um, the threat of an asteroid is inevitable if we don't do anything, but um, it's it's not something that's going to happen probably tonight or even next year or even in the next 20 years. Right. But in the next 100, 200, 300 years, yeah, this is something real. And it turns out you don't need a gigantic impact to uh, to be a problem. It's not like you need something the size of the dinosaur killer, which was... 10 kilometers, six miles across, something like that to really hurt us. Because if, if you know, we have nuclear powers, we have a global economy now. Uh, if, if one of these things were to impact over and, and uh, just to pick something out of the news, uh, India or Pakistan, uh, you know, if it happens over one of those countries, the other country is going to, you know, could get blamed for it. Um, you know, it could happen over China, Russia, US, whatever. And so if it happened over... A, an economically important area, for example, you know, it just doesn't take that big of an impact to throw things off. And so I think it's something we should worry about. On the other hand, you know, doing something about it, it's expensive. It takes a long time and you have to balance sort of the, the, the maybe not so immediacy of it with, you know, gosh, we have to spend $10 billion on it. On the other hand, if it does happen, it's going to cost us trillions. So all of these things have to sort of be balanced in your head when you're thinking about this sort of thing. So in my opinion, 
with with companies bringing the cost of launch down uh, to a tenth of what they used to be, um, this is suddenly becoming economically a little more feasible. And if you couch it in terms of let's learn more about asteroids by sending probes there, then also make this probe able to move them maybe. And then we can learn about how to do that. And in this whole time, we're taking these nice st- small steps, one step at a time into, you know, saving the planet. So we've taken those baby steps now with Osiris Rex uh, and, and, and Bainu uh, taking a small sample uh, and hopefully sending it back. Uh, so we're going, we're, we're getting the skills we need to get to these, to get to these asteroids and uh, get the, get all that down because that's not an easy thing to do either. And I've always I've often said that one of the most important things NASA is doing is its NEO program, its Near Earth Object Program. I think that that is something with, that is vital to uh, understanding what the danger actually is. And they've cataloged like what is it five or six thousand different objects. We know where most things are. Uh, and we're doing we know more what the big every, things are. we know what the big things are and we're learning more about these smaller ones all the time. And the, and the reason we know what's working is I hear all the time in the news, new asteroid coming in between the orbit of moon, uh, the moon and earth this week, you know, and I, I see, I hear that news story more often now because these surveys like Neowise and, um, and a lot of the deep sky surveys like, uh, that are online now that are taking images like the dark energy survey, which is looking at large areas of the skies, they're able to help us find these asteroids that we couldn't see before. So it's working. We're getting more information about what, what asteroids can hit us. And that's always a good thing. Um, yes. Uh, what you're saying is true. I hear, oh, you're um, not going to butt me, are you? Yeah. Oh. But, um, and there are other <laughs> surveys too, right? There's PanStars, and, which is already online, the Large right. Synoptic Survey Telescope coming online, That's right. and a bunch of other things too. And, and uh, actually, and some Sloan, orbiting, Sloan some more, did or, so. Sloan, you know, and the Catalina Survey, there are all these different surveys doing this and some orbiting ones that will be going up and they can find stuff. And um, the problem is um, these are these are going to preferentially find big asteroids. And yeah, sure, you know, you, you hear in the news that, and ask, you know, some five meter wide thing is going to pass between the earth and the moon, or more likely it's seen after it's already passed us. That's typical Mm -hmm. because of the way the geometry works out. They're easier to find after they pass us. Hooray. Um, (laughs) But, you know, there are, the thing is, there are a lot of these things, you know, you're hearing about a handful of them, but there are, you know, thousands, maybe millions of asteroids that are bigger than say 20 or 30 meters across uh, that are out there that could pass by the Earth. And when you look at Chelyabinsk, which was the impact over Russia in 2013, which is hard to believe it was already that long ago. I know. 2013? It seemed like it just happened. Yeah, and that was 19 meters across. So it was you know 60 feet. And um, that was way too small to be picked up unless it was by you know by accident. Anything that small is really kind of tough to see until it's right on top of us. So even with all the stuff that we're doing, those are hard to spot. And that one blew up with about the equivalent energy of a half a megaton of TNT. So a half a megaton nuclear weapon, which is, would be a very small nuke. Uh, the one that blew up in Arizona to create Meteor Crater, or the one in 1908, which blew up over Tunguska in Siberia, those were closer to 15 to 20 megatons. And again, those were 30 meters across, something like that. Uh, And those would still be hard to spot. So, you know, we're taking these first steps. We have a long way to go. I don't want anybody to get complacent. 
but neither do I want folks to panic. You know, we are doing this. We're sending probes to asteroids. We've got, like you said, Osiris Rex uh, near Bennu. Um, the Japanese have Hayabusa 2. Uh, next to Ryugu. I'm probably horribly mispronouncing these. My daughter speaks Japanese. She'll probably yell at me about this. Um, and there are future missions to go to other of these asteroids, including some uh, to try to move them out of the way. It was 2005 when NASA launched the Deep Impact Probe, which I th- uh, or, or is when it slammed into a small comet. And it, oh, yeah. I remember that one. It really didn't do that much. It wasn't enough to move it out of the way or anything. Um, but it, it was a sort of a technology tester to see, you know, when you're approaching an object that is a couple of miles across and you're, you're moving at 20 miles per second or something relative to it, you better be aiming really well. Uh, you don't have any time to course correct. So testing that tech, that's important. That's the kind of thing we need to be doing. It's a really interesting point and one that's a, a level deeper than what I thought we were going to go into to, into today. Um, but when you bring up that you don't know these things are even here until after they pass most of the time, because you have, you know, you have a couple of problems, right? There's a lot of sky to search and then you've got a resolution issue. Um, and so finding these small things coming is it, I mean, it's, it's a huge undertaking. Um, but if you don't know, the, the geopolitical implications of something going off above the wrong place at the wrong time really could. I mean, you could start wars over these things. You could definitely, you know, shut down economies over this type of thing. Or, you know, I, I just think that the countries that can get involved would probably look at different scenarios differently. You know, you've got one that's going to hit New York City. You've probably got the entire world working to fix it. And then, you know, you find out, hey, there's this this is this uh, meteor coming. It's going to collide into North Korea. You probably got everybody like, ah, I just, there's nothing we can do about it. You know, it depends who's president of the U.S. Right. Uh, <laughs> if they're buddies with North Korea or not, I'll just leave right. that. Hanging yeah, yeah. Out but there. I mean, but, you know, uh, you see what I'm saying though. It's uh, but, there's a lot of implications yeah. with because you don't know until it's already happening. And it's it's worse than that. Um, imagine. There is an asteroid and it's 50 meters across. So it's going to, you know, detonate like a nuclear bomb, basically. And it's coming in and it's going to, to come in, uh, let's say, over North Korea. And uh, the, 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 the world pitches in, uh, you know, the U.S. builds most of the, uh, provides the rocket and, and uh, most of the mission that's going to move this thing. But other countries pitch in, including South Korea. And it turns out that there's a glitch in the software and um, uh, that uh, when we try to move this thing out of the way, now suddenly it's going to hit some other country, you know, China, or it's aiming at South Korea, North Korea contributes, or, or something like that. I'm getting this wrong. I'm saying this incorrectly. What I'm saying is, you know, some country contributes to this and it winds up making a mistake that makes it the asteroid going to hit their enemy. Their enemy's not going to be happy about that, is what I'm trying to say. Right. And so there are, there are geopolitical implications of this, even beyond letting this thing hit. And so there has to be global agreements about this. And there are people out there um, who have been working on this and trying to get politicians to, to take this seriously. But you know, there it's hard. There are more immediate threats. It's hard to get them to take this kind of thing seriously when there's so many other things going on. And it would be nice if... Um, we could have some sort of protocols in place for what happens when we see this. 
Well, this is in the realm of what space law, I guess, which is actually a yeah. grad grad studies program, um, something that people can make their focus, their point of interest, you know, in grad school. And uh, yeah, it crosses all the borders, you know, all the nations and really deals with exactly what you're talking about or is supposed to. Yeah. Right. Yeah. It's supposed to. And it, it will. I mean, at some point, someday, you know, this is going to happen. We're going to see something heading our way. And we're going to have to do something about it. And whether it's you know tonight or in fifty years, it's inevitable. And you know we have the technology to do something about this. The question is, do we have the the will to to do it? Do we really though? Do we really have the technology for this? Can we um, actually move or do whatever with an asteroid to keep it from being a threat to us? Um, I sh- I should say that we we have the sort of basis for the technology of it. And and in some senses we do, and it depends. See, the thing is, this isn't like in the movies where it's like this thing is spotted, we send up a rocket, it pushes out of the way, everybody's happy. It's not like that. It depends on the size of this asteroid. It depends on what it's made of, metal or rock. It depends on how long in advance we see it. And that's really, that's really the most critical thing. Because you know, if you see it twenty years in advance, you you only have to move it a little bit to to have that add up enough over time to miss the Earth. You know, you think about it. If this thing is headed dead center for the Earth, you have to move it. And I'll, I'll use English units. You have to move it four thousand miles to miss us because the Earth is eight thousand miles across. Move it by four thousand miles, it'll miss. Well, if you've got a year to do that, that's one thing. If you've got twenty years to do that, that's another. It's much easier to move something 4,000 miles over a much longer period of time than it is over a short period of time. And so that's a huge concern. Uh, and, and so it's just, it's a very complex idea. Do you want to, you want to smash it? Do you want to blow it up? Do you want to park a mission, a probe near it and let the gravity of the probe very gently tug it out of, out of harm's way into a safe orbit? These are all possibilities but you know we don't know which one is best, and we need to test all this stuff to make sure we know what we're doing. Do you have an opinion which one's best? Well, it's it's not it's not like that. It's like um, it's like if you have a disease, do you do you have surgery or do you take medicine? Well, you know it depends okay. it, which one's best. It depends on a lot of things. So for something small that's a hundred meters across, maybe the best thing to do is just blow it up um, because then the pieces are very the pieces get a lot smaller. They're spread out. And, um, you know, it burns up in the atmosphere over a huge area and it's not a big deal, but if it's really big, blowing it up may not be feasible uh, and it may not help because it it may still, you may still have enough uh, of this stuff hitting you to do a lot of damage. So maybe you want to move it away, move it out of the, uh, off to the side, but that's harder to do. So, you know, it's all of these things. So you have this sort of really complex flow chart, you know, if we have this much time and it's made of this and it's this big, do we do this or that? And we just need to do all of this modeling and then go out there and, and practically test this stuff to understand what's best. But you don't think that the solution would be to hire uh, oil riggers from the Gulf of Mexico and send them to the asteroid to blow it up? Oddly enough, no. Okay. Uh, and uh, I can I hope that to... by the time the next asteroid's a threat, we won't have oil riggers anymore. <laughs> yeah, right. Okay. send up <laughs> solar panel installers instead. <laughs> right. There you go. That's right. A big, a big solar panel. I will, I will solar panel you. Uh, well, yeah. here, actually, now that I think about it, that kind of works. There's another thing where um, you can paint one side of an asteroid white, 
And it, it, what happens is it reflects light differently and the pressure of sunlight can actually push this thing off course. Uh, so in fact, there, there are all kinds of ways of, of trying to get these things to move out of our way. I was joking at the solar panel and then I suddenly realized, well, hang wait, on. So, there's, so, there's radiation <laughs> pressure here we can deal with. That's right. Um, all kinds of things. Yeah. So is it, so it's pressure, it's pressure, but I've never heard of this. So there's pressure buildup. So it's not like the photons hitting it and pushing it, but you're actually building up pressure on one side of this. Oh um, yeah. It's a weird thing. Photons don't have mass, right? They're right. particles of light. Right. Um, and they literally have no mass, but it turns out they do have momentum. And that's a weird thing to think of because we think of momentum as being mass times velocity. That's its definition. Yeah. Um, and so if something is zero mass, it shouldn't have any momentum. But it turns out uh, a clever a clever fellow named Einstein wrote down this equation, E equals MC squared. And what people forget is that there's another term to that equation. Um, and it's it's plus basically the momentum of the the, the of the particle. It's more complicated than that. I'm oversimplifying. But it turns out that, yeah, you don't need to have mass to have momentum. And photons do have a little bit of momentum. And it's because they're made of energy and energy can be converted to mass. That's what e equals mc squared means. And so they have sort of a, they have a momentum as if they have mass uh, because they have energy. Think of it that way. And so with the sun blasting out all this light, um, if you can get an asteroid to absorb or reflect photons, um, they are applying a very gentle force to this uh, to this object, and you can make it spin up or spin down, make it rotate faster or slower, and then they radiate away this extra light, and and it it, it acts like a thrust. Basically, the the whole point is you're converting sunlight into thrust for the asteroid, and that will push it off into a safe direction if you do this correctly. It's it's weird. But if you have enough time, if you have years and years and years, um, you can do this. So, you know, when I think about the future, like 200 years from now, 300 years from now, if we are a space-based civilization, like say in The Expanse or some TV show like that, maybe that would be something you would hire people to do is like, go to this asteroid, uh, uh, cover this part of it with white powder, and then leave it. <laughs> and then over the next 20 years, it'll be pushed into a safe orbit. Something like that. And you can do that with thousands of asteroids and then hopefully remove the threat. Well, for what one of the, the things that I want to go back to for just a minute is that one of the issues that and an important one is the detection of these uh, asteroids to begin mm -hmm. with. And that's step one. That's right. And you said that the currently the large surveys that we have, the space the space telescopes that we have currently looking at the for these things, things like Neowise and and some of the uh, ground based surveys are preferentially looking for some of the larger ones. What about Gaia? Could Gaia, is Gaia able to get any better? And are there things coming down the pike, maybe LSST, that will be able to show us some of the smaller objects that are unknown at this point? You know, it's funny when you were talking about this earlier, and it, I'm I, just by coincidence, I was writing about Gaia today. There was a press release about it, and I'm writing an article for it for tomorrow as we're recording this. Gaia is a European Space Agency mission that is scanning the sky and measuring the positions, colors, and proper motion, the motion of these stars against the sky for like a billion stars. And it's, it's more than that. That's that. That's what they were predicting. But it's like 1.3 billion stars. It's yeah. a huge number. It's amazing. Um, uh, yeah. I mean, they can actually measure uh, the proper motion of 
the large and small Magellanic clouds and globular clusters. I mean, objects that are hundreds of thousands of light years away. It's incredible how accurate this thing is. And um, it's, it's actually solving a lot of mysteries about astronomy that we didn't know. Like how far away is Polaris? How far away are the Pleiades? Stuff, you know, there's stuff like that. But, you know, I don't know um, if it is observing asteroids. And, and I, you know, it's not always um, you're pointing this thing, taking data, getting an image, and then you can look for moving things. It's not always like that. Um, like Kepler, um, uh, it, it didn't save the data that way. So I don't think Kepler was that sensitive to asteroids in the sense of if you discovered one, it would be able to tell you. So I, so I don't know. When you said that earlier, I was thinking, I wonder if Gaia could do this, but I don't think so. Um, but there are other satellites that can do this. Um, you know, the WISE mission was great at this, and it, now it's NEOWISE. It's been um, recommissioned to do different work. Uh, it looks in the infrared, which is better because for various reasons, when you measure the infrared light, uh, the thermal light coming off of an asteroid, you can get its size a lot more accurately than you can with optical telescopes. So that that's nice. Um, optical telescopes, it's harder to get the size of an asteroid. You could easily be off by a factor of two, whereas with, uh, with WISE looking in thermal infrared, it's a lot more accurate. So what we need are, are more things like that. Um, and I think that LSST uh, is going to be doing this. Uh, any any sort of big survey telescope, which is going to look at whopping great sections of the sky, they're going to be discovering these things. And the question is just, you know, how small? Yeah. If, if you're looking at things and you can't see anything, I don't know, smaller than 100 meters out, out to a certain distance, you know, those those don't hit us very often. But something that's, that's 10 meters across, those hit us on sort of the decade timescale. And stuff that's a meter across, and that burns up in our atmosphere. So it's not really a danger. But those hit us every month. So, you know, smaller ones happen more often, but they're harder to see farther away, which means you can't see them as much. You know, really big telescope, but, 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 but. So there's just a lot of different factors in this. And I think that uh, I, I don't know about others, uh, the, the resolution capabilities of other telescopes coming down the pike, like, say, W first. But again, these wide field infrared telescopes are going to be, I think, key in helping our understanding of where these smaller objects are and maybe even using them for, for detection. I love that NASA took WISE and then turned it, actually turned it off. The mission was over. And then a few years later, they decide, you know what? We've got this perfectly usable spacecraft here. They turned it back on and repurposed it to the Near Earth Object Program, NEOWISE. And I just think that was brilliant. I'd love that they did that. And they did something yeah. sim they did something similar with Kepler, although it wasn't for with asteroids. Kepler, yeah. They called it K2. And that and that's the solar radiation pressure idea again. To me, that was brilliant. They one of the reaction wheels goes down and they use the pressure of the sun to stabilize the spacecraft. It couldn't point like it used to anymore, but they re they still got another couple of years worth of data out of it. So it was amazing. Okay. Yeah. Um and since you said that, uh and I have internet access, I just looked up W first, which is um can never remember what the acronym is. Wide, Wide field, field infrared, infrared survey telescope. <laughs> survey telescope, right? And and you know, if and when it launches, it'll get renamed after somebody. That's right. <laughs> um, but right now, it's just called W first. And I'm I'm looking up the wide field instrument on it. So what you have is a telescope with a lot of different cameras attached to it, like Hubble. Hubble is one telescope with uh, five cameras. Yeah, well, actually, W first is using a, now. a Hubble chassis. So that was one that was a given from NRO. Yeah, it's it's the same size as Hubble. It's a 2.4 meter, you know, eight foot mirror. 
and uh, I'm looking at the instrumentation. There is a wide field instrument. Now get this, it's an active area of a quarter of a square degree. So that's that's big for a space telescope, but you're still talking about an area about the size of the of the full moon on the sky. So that's huge for a telescope, but that's pretty small for a uh, for an actual survey because you know on the ground we now have cameras that are you know several degrees on a side, um, and so this this thing is you know I don't know if that's really great for just like letting it survey the sky. I don't think it can do that. I think you still need to sort of point and shoot. Um, but it, it, because it has a wide field of view compared to other space telescopes, they call that a survey instrument. Right. Um, so, you know, but like Hubble, the, the, the advanced camera for surveys is still a tiny field of view compared to what PanStars is doing or these other ground-based surveys where you can, you can have a much, uh, much slower, uh, excuse me, much faster telescope where, uh, it, it can look at you know, 15 square degrees or some huge chunk of the sky at a time. Yeah. It sounds like that's really where that's really what's going to do it is something from the ground that looks at huge areas of the sky. These space telescopes, unless you, you know, you launch that up into space, but that's really hard to do. Yeah. 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 Especially with some of these surveys, the size of them. Okay. Well, can we move on to solar storms for a little bit? I want to ask you about, <laughs> uh, we, we've, we, you know, we, we, uh, we've talked about asteroids hitting us and we know that they're, it's, it's a danger, but it's not something that we should get too worked up about. Just be aware of it and continue to look. It's definitely worth continuing to do, but solar storms is something I hear a lot about. I remember back in 2012, I don't know if you remember this, but there was like 12, 12, 2012 was going to be the end of the world. Right. And one of the things that I heard Michio Kaku do on TV, he went on Fox news and said, because of the solar storms that are hitting, cause it was around solar max at the time that we are going to be, you know, we have, there's a lot of dangers. And I thought he was kind of overblowing the, threat but maybe what yeah. miss you kaku overblowing something <laughs> okay. i know right i mean it's like okay i think he's overstating the problem just a little bit and that's being kind but i i wonder what are your thoughts on solar activity as, as far as a well i want to distinguish between you know the 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 december 21st 2012 nonsense which was you know this this basically these these doomsayers were saying that the maya calendar ended on this date and that they, that meant it was the end of the world. And it's like, okay, the Maya calendar did not end on that date any more than your calendar ends on December 31st every year. Um, <laughs> I have a just, feeling you said this before. <laughs> a few times. Um, back back in 2012, I was saying this a lot. Oh, yes. uh, I was getting a lot of email from scared people because you know they're, this is clickbait kind of stuff. And so there were a lot of folks talking about it. And it's like the, the Maya had a lot of of, of of cycles in their calendar, just like we do. We have days, weeks, months, years, decades, millennia. Um, and so did they, although they didn't measure in the same way we did. And this was just one of those cycles ticking over. Uh, and then it just, you know, started over again. That's all it was. And as far as we can tell from their culture, this was just sort of a time of celebration and thinking back and the same kinds of things. And, and I'm, I'm really oversimplifying it, um, but it's the same sorts of things we do on New Year's. So they did not claim it was the end of the world or anything like that. But a lot of people were trying to find stuff that fit uh, this this Maya prophecy, uh, and uh, it was all nonsense. On the other hand, you know, completely aside from that, yeah, there are dangers in space, and it turns out the sun is one of them, and it has these solar storms where 
it can erupt. And it's a, it's a fundamentally magnetic phenomenon. The sun is a very powerful uh, source of magnetism. And, uh, you know, when you look at a picture of the sun, you see sunspots. Those are magnetic features. Um, basically, in a nutshell, the sun convects, which means that hot stuff in the interior rises up, hits the surface and cools and then falls back down. It's just like boiling water or, you know, thunderstorms where hot air rises and cools off and then sinks again. You've seen this a million times. It happens in the sun. But these, these parcels of, of hot gas in the sun have magnetic fields embedded in them. And sometimes they get up to the surface, these magnetic fields get tangled up and they prevent that parcel of gas from sinking again. And so what happens is you get this hot gas, gets up to the surface, it starts to cool, but then it can't sink back down. And because the sun is hot, it's glowing. And if, this, if you get a cooler gas surrounded by all this hot gas, that cooler gas isn't glowing as brightly. And so it looks dark against the background of the sun, becomes a sunspot. Da, da, da. <laughs> the thing is, these, if these, uh, these, these magnetic fields, they have a lot of energy associated with them. If they get tangled up, they can snap. Like, you know, imagine you have a, uh, a sack, a pillow, a pillowcase full of mousetraps and, and one of them snaps. It's going to hit another one and jostle it and make that one snap and the next one snaps and then blah, 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 and you get the sudden release of energy. Same thing with these magnetic fields. And when that happens, you get these huge eruptions on the sun. They can be solar flares, which are incredibly intense, or you can get um, a coronal mass ejection, which is a much more energetic event, but it's much more spread out. So it's kind of like having a tornado versus a hurricane. You don't want to be in the path of either, uh, but they, they, they both do a lot of damage. And coronal, mass, and coronal mass ejections are the – I studied them for a bit when I was at HAO, and these are these uh, magnetic eruptions that can expel quite a bit of material towards the Earth. Uh, the sun rotates once every right. 27 days, I believe, something like that. And if you happen to be on the – if one happens to be happening as it faces the Earth uh, and travels towards us, that whole – eruption both the material in the magnetic field and the magnetic field itself is more of a magnetic eruption than anything else those magnetic fields interact with the earth's magnetic field right that's exactly right i mean there's there's a threat because just these th this flood of a billion tons literally a billion tons of subatomic particles screaming away from the sun at a, a fraction of the speed of light these things plow into satellites and can damage them they they um they can generate a tremendous amount of energy that can short out the circuits and things like that. Um, and the magnetic fields associated with the, with something like a coronal mass ejection. Um, yeah, that couples with the geomagnetic field, the earth's magnetic field. And, and it's kind of like ringing a bell. Uh, and it, it basically, you, you get these tremendous uh, uh, currents that can flow through the earth's magnetic field, which induces a current in the, in, in the earth, in the earth itself. It's called a geomagnetically induced current, a GIC. And then you have an associated pulse of magnetic energy from that. This gets very complicated. The prop, what happens is um, it, the problem with this is that um, it can generate huge amounts of, of very powerful transient, short-lived, but still very powerful currents. And that can interact with our power grid. And this happened in 1989 in, in Quebec. There were brownouts all over uh, that province because uh, a powerful uh, uh, coronal mass ejection interacted with the earth and blew out the power grid up there. And it took them a long time to fix that. 
if this had been slightly different, if this had been a more powerful event, that could have been bad. And I'll, and I'll say, this is where things get interesting. And by interesting, I mean, change, change your underwear. Interesting. <laughs> um, the first solar storm ever seen was seen in 1859. This was the discovery of basically space weather. Um, a, a, a couple of different astronomers actually were studying the sun at the time and saw a bright spot on the sun, which is very rare to see these things in visible light. Usually their energy is emitted in different wavelengths that we can't see. But this one guy named Carrington spotted it. It's called the Carrington event. And it was a, a huge solar flare, which triggered a coronal mass ejection. And it was such a powerful event that by the time this thing hit the earth, um, sometime later, hours later, uh, it induced huge currents in the ground. And uh, at that time, you know, telegraphs were popular. And um, there was so much electricity being uh, running through the wires just due to this, that they could turn off the power supply to these, these telegraphs and they still worked. Basically, you know, it's it's like it's like having your light switch off and the lights still come on because there's electricity, there's juice flowing through your wires. Wow. If that were to happen now, <laughs> that would be really, really bad because our power grid, when it was designed, was designed to be able to handle extra current like that. However, it was designed 50, 60 years ago. And we've, you know, we've we've edged up more and more power flowing through these things. And there's just not enough room left for a big, massive influx of power that you weren't thinking about. So a big coronal mass ejection um, could blow out uh, power grids all over Canada and North America. We're, we're more susceptible to it due to the geology, the, the granite under the ground, and it, a lot of stuff basically affects how, how much this can affect us. So you know we're talking about power outages that could last for months, months because of this. And, are you, and so I know I've been talking for a long time, but this, this is where I can finally get to the point. In 2012, the year the Maya prophecy uh, didn't happen, there was a very powerful coronal mass ejection. It was at least the equal of the Carrington event. So this was the most powerful event seen in 150 years. And it, by the grace of, you know, solar fusion, I suppose, uh, it missed us. Um, it was aimed about 20, I think it was 20 degrees away from us. So, you know, it basically, the sun blew this thing out and it missed the earth. Had that thing been aimed at us, we probably wouldn't be having this conversation right now. It would have brought, it would have shut down power all over the planet. It would have been an epic disaster. And most people haven't even heard of this event. And when I heard about it, I, I mean, the hair in the back of my neck stood up. And I've written about it. So when people ask me what I actually fret about uh, when it comes to these sort of disasters, that's the one. Um, you know, black holes and magnetars and other things, they're fun to think about because they can't really affect us that much. But a solar storm, yeah. 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 And, and they happen, you know, big ones like this happen often enough that we really need to be thinking about uh, what I say is girding our grid. I like that because it's, a, it's an anagram. Um, Gurdon grid. Um, <laughs> yeah, I got that. <laughs> but it's something we should be thinking about. And I'm, you know, I have solar panels on my house, so I'm fine. Uh, uh, I won't even notice until my neighbors are like, "Hey, is our power out?" It's like, "Yeah, should have gotten solar panels." Yeah, yeah. I, um, <laughs> well, but I you know, hopefully, well, hopefully, as we go more decentralized with our power generation, 
um, this won't be as big of a problem. But until that happens, this is a problem. Yeah, I, 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 I want to have another podcast with you to talk about your solar system because I just put seven and a half kilowatts on my house too. So I have a nice, a nice, uh, a nice setup as Big well. System. Yeah, it's for we. I got hit by two hurricanes in a row in two years, so I did something about it. But in Illinois. No, no, I'm I'm in Florida now. Sorry, <laughs> oh, you, said, you said you said Illinois uh, earlier. That was when I okay. left Boulder. But um, uh, okay. But okay, you said that we would not be having this conversation now. Really, I mean, if it, wouldn't we have the we do have the capacity to repair things, right? Let's say it did hit us. The entire world's power grid had an induced current overflow, just popped all the all the transformers everywhere around the world. That's not the end of the story. We could still fix things, right? I mean, it, it would take a while, yeah, and it would be expensive. Yeah, but sure. we wouldn't be like back in the agrarian days or anything <laughs> like that, right? It would be expensive, yes, um, to the tune of trillions of dollars. Um, yes, it would be expensive. And and I and when I say we wouldn't have this conversation right now, it's basically because the course of history would have changed. You know, it's like going back in time and shooting Hitler. We also would not be having this conversation right now. Oh, I see what you because mean. Because the world would be a vastly different place. Oh, uh, you're, doing that, you're fact, doing that time thing. Okay, I get it now. Sure. Yeah. <laughs> okay. <laughs> but in fact, um, you know, it would have taken years. I mean, when you look at you look at the way the grid works, there are these transformers um, uh, that are huge. You know, they're the size of, a, of you know, like a bedroom. And um, they, they're used in the grid to... to to work in the system and everything, you need them. But the problem is there that you can't mass produce these things. They're basically made by hand. This is the last I heard. I don't know what if the situation has changed in the past few years. But that's really the problem. You know, if you have one in Quebec, it's different than one in New York, and that's different than one in Minnesota. And uh, they're they're sort of wrapped up and built by hand. So if one blows out, it takes a long time to replace it, just the amount of time it takes to make another one. Now imagine that a hundred of these things are out all over the country. Uh, that's a big problem. You just can't make them fast enough, uh, and and so you've got this issue where you have to maybe have we should be building backup of these things, or we should be laying more power lines down, or we should be decentralizing. And this is you know, look, I write about climate change, or I, it's been a while since I've written about climate change. I still talk about it a lot. Um, we should be moving away from fossil fuels anyway, which are centralized generations of power. But, and we should be moving more towards things like having your house with solar panels on it or wind energy, these sorts of things where it's, it's, it's more local, it's more regional than, um, uh, than most fossil fuel plants are. That would be good too, because that takes pressure off the grid. If I'm not drawing my you know, four or five kilowatts or whatever off of the grid, and and a million people are also not doing that. You're taking a lot of the pressure off. You, you got to think of this thing like a pipe with water. Electricity flowing through a wire is a good analogy to water flowing through a pipe. And if you have too much water and the pressure gets up too high, your your pipe bursts. And and that that can happen with the grid. It's not just these transformers. Um, you can you can lose uh, the wires. The wires heat up due to resistance, and they can sag and melt. And now you've got thousands of miles of wiring you got to replace, millions maybe, and on and on and on. It's just, it's an epic global disaster. And it's something we should be thinking about. It would cost, it's going to cost a trillion dollars to fix this before it happens. It's going to cost multiple trillions of dollars to fix it after. And that's after losing a lot of lives too. Right. And I, I guess I, one of the things that I'm actually quite pessimistic about is humanity's ability to 
to uh, respond to these things or even plan for them at this point. It's it's just, I don't know. You think? Yeah, I know. It's just, I don't want to, it gets me bummed out if I think about it too much. <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah. And you know, it's it's like I said, this isn't something I, I lie in bed at night in a sweaty panic over. This is a matter of concern. It could be 50 years. It could be 200 years before something like this happens. Or, you know, right now we're at the bottom of the solar cycle. So it's unlikely we're going to get a lot of magnetic activity now, but in five years or six years, um, the sun's going to ramp up again. And the 2003 cycle was really violent. There were some huge storms, massive flares off the sun in that that year. Um, and you can look those up. And the, the 2012 one was also uh, pretty nasty. So, uh, you know, it could happen in the next five and a half years. I really doubt it because, you know, you're going to get big events, but they have to be aimed at the earth. And so that that reduces their ability to affect us even more. So it's you know it's unlikely that any given solar cycle is going to have something that's going to take our power grid down. But you know the longer you wait, the the worse it's going to be. It's going to happen eventually. We need to be ready for it. Yeah, something we should be thinking. It's, about. it's a geometry problem, really. I mean, you got to think about all that geometry lining up at a time when solar when the solar cycle is powerful enough to cause some real damage, and so that does reduce the right. risk quite a quite a bit i think yeah but the longer the timeline obviously the more the chance increases that it's going to happen right so that's right um well phil obviously this is something that uh you're very passionate about i mean this is the whole point of everything you've done with bad astronomy is like communicating science in a way that people can take it actually i've got a quote in front of me here let me just read this it's uh from you phil it says pseudoscience is like a virus at low levels it's no big deal but when it reaches a certain threshold, it becomes sickening. Um, this is what you do, right? Is you take That's pretty good. I'm pretty smart. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. But this is what you do. I mean, this is what you you've done TED Talks and other things on this type of stuff. You put information out there where people can avoid just the clickbait. Even if the clickbait's what gets them into it, here's a place to get the information where they can actually understand what's going on and instead of worrying, maybe just understand and prepare right? Those types of things. Um, but do you worry on the other side of that, that the more you put out, even this show, even doing this right now, we've got you on here. We've got a podcast where the topic is the universe is trying to kill you. You just talked about how at you know the top end of the cycle, the sun can take down the whole power grid. How do you prevent people taking a piece of what you're saying and then immediately starting the problem back up with more clickbait? Can't. You know, there's the, there's always going to be uh, the Express. There's always going to be the Daily Mail. There's always going to be some rag out there that is willing to uh, completely make up uh, 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 bovine feces. Let's put it that way, um, <laughs> and 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 sell it. Um, and and so there's you know you can't prevent them from doing it, but that shouldn't prevent you from talking about it. I can't. I can't sit on my hands and not write about this stuff or keep my mouth closed um, knowing that somebody out there is going to misinterpret what I'm saying. Um, I just have to, you know, there's a lot of discussion right now about how to talk about, for example, climate change, how to talk about pseudoscience, uh, whether it's in, in it, whether it's climate science, astronomy, medical science is is rampant. You've got people like Gwyneth Paltrow who is literally selling nonsense uh, in in far, far as health measures, and it's hard to beat these folks who have these loud voices. But you know, how do you talk about this? 
Um, how do you convince people? How do you show them? And, and getting the facts out there is not enough. Um, uh, I talk about this a lot when it comes to climate change. Um, I'm, you know, I'm, I'm relatively well known in my circles. I'm, I'm unlikely to have a Texas megachurch invite me to talk about climate change. On the other hand, Catherine Hayhoe is a climate scientist and an evangelical Christian. She is very likely to be invited to a Texas megachurch and talk about this kind of stuff. So there's a, a, a hugely tribal aspect to this, which is an impediment. However, if you have people like, like Dr. Hayhoe, um, who's willing to get out there and, and, and make her voice heard, she's doing, uh, well, she's doing the Lord's work out there. And, and, uh, at the very least, we have to get the facts out there. They have to exist for people to be able to, at the very minimum, find them. But you know, if you are a member of a group that is stereotypically known for some sort of pseudoscience, whether it's conservatives and climate change, conservative and progressive both buy into stuff like anti-vaccination nonsense. But uh, you know, you, you're likely to see more GMO stuff on the progressive side. Uh, if that's your tribe and you know what's what, yeah, talk to them about it because it's important that they, they they won't listen to somebody from another tribe. They will listen to somebody who they think is one of their own. Uh, and so uh, that's important. And I think um, uh, just just for me to be able to hand that information to other people, if that's the role that I'm going to play, if that's what I can do, then yeah, I'm going to do it. Yeah, I think it's. I agree with you. I think it's very important. Do you think there is an obligation from mass media outlets, or let's say, like uh, I gave you a hard time earlier in the podcast about movies? I know you like to uh, point out the bad science in movies, and it's everywhere. Um, you know, we're talking about Armageddon, and obviously, that's that's an easy one to pick on. Um, <laughs> do you think that in making these movies, that they they have an obligation to put good science in them? No. Um- let me be clear. I, I used to really mock the bad science in movies. Um, then I realized I was being a dick, and um, <laughs> and it was uh, it, it comes across as really, uh, really petty uh, and small. And I stopped doing it. Plus, I found that I wasn't enjoying movies. And you know, I'm just going there to pick apart the science, and it, it was turning me into, you know, basically a YouTube commenter, and I couldn't stand it. Uh, and I, I stopped doing it. Um, and now I love movies again, which is lovely. And what happened was. Also part of it is I started consulting on some things like that, TV shows and movies. And you learn, it's like the most important thing is the story. And if, if the science is contradicted by what they need the story to do, then the science is the one that's going to get sacrificed, not the story. That's okay. As a consultant, what I, what I tell them when I come on board is my job is to tell you not what you can and can't do necessarily, unless that is what you want. But it's more like, here's what the science tells us. Let it inform your story. Instead of doing it this way, you could do it this way. It's more accurate. And it gives you this other thing that you can do, uh, you know, that gives you a subplot or something like that. And they typically, the, the producers, the writers, they love that. Mm -hmm. um, but they're under no obligation to, to have the science right. So the fact that they even are consulting with scientists, I consulted on couple of different TV shows and things like that. And just the fact that they would listen to me and put stuff in the show, you know, even if it's just a line, uh, that to me is a huge success. And so if they do happen to make major changes, which, and I got to say, Marvel is just wonderful about this. Uh, the Hulk, Thor, 
several of the others uh, uh, where they they introduce science that they didn't need to do, um, but they wanted to do it, and it made the movies better, in my opinion. So, uh, if you can use this this tool to educate the public, because you know I, these movies are doing fairly well from what I've heard. Um, and so you have an audience who may not be exposed to this sort of thing otherwise. Uh, and if it gets them interested in it, Hey, you know, who am I to say that's the wrong thing to do? Well, while we're on this topic, there's something I'd like to ask you then, because I am a big fan of all of the shows that you mentioned and, and the Marvel movies. I love the expanse and, and there's lots of TV shows that oh, oh, the expanse. You know, yes. they're all wonderful television <laughs> shows. And one of the things that I've, and I've spent the last couple of years doing hangouts uh, on YouTube with professional scientists and, and astronomers from all different fields. And one of we had a series of hangouts with uh, some people from George Mason University, particularly Arnold Nikogosian, who has literally written the book on space physiology. And my question to you is, I've over the course of doing these hangouts and interviews with people, I'm starting to wonder if it's actually biologically fit physically possible for us to colonize even the solar system. And I'd like to get your thoughts on that because I'm starting to wonder, we've never really spent much time outside of Earth's magnetosphere. And already we've noticed that just being on the space station for a year at a time does some serious damage to our bodies. Do you think human beings in our current biological evolutionary state are going to be able to survive going and living anywhere else? Sure. Um, it's not, it's not, uh, uh, an impossible, intractable problem. It's just a hard one and it's a really hard one. Um, but you know, for example, if you're, if you're in microgravity, uh, basically zero gravity, uh, your bones get decalcified and you, you suffer, um, bone loss and muscle atrophy. Um, there are some other problems with vision, uh, blood flow is, is changed. There are all these problems and, and it's been studied. Um, that can be a hundred percent avoided if you have some system of artificial gravity on your spaceship. Now, artificial gravity, like in Star Trek is probably not possible. Uh, and certainly not, is certainly not according to the physics we understand it today. Um, I mean, as far as being able to like build something now, on the other hand, you can spin something, uh, a big old ring and spin it. And that produces, um, uh, I guess, a, a faux gravity. It's, it's a centrifugal force, a centripetal acceleration, whatever term you want to use. Um, so like in 2001, you have this gigantic space station or the wheel inside of the spaceship that uh, Frank Poole was jogging along in that famous scene in 2001. And that solves a lot of your problems. And it turns out you don't need a full gravity to, uh, to do this. You could have a third of a gravity, a third of Earth's gravity, something like more like Mars's gravity. And, and you should be okay for longer periods of time. So you can get around that. The radiation issue, you know, shielding. And, and again, that's an engineering problem. You encase your ship in ice, for example. Ice is really good at absorbing a lot of the radiation. That's, um, that's a, a problem. And it turns out ice is useful in that you can drink it when you melt it. So you can, you can build your spaceship and, and protect it with that. If you're living on Mars, you, you build underground or on the moon. Um, that kind of sucks. Uh, there's not much of a view, but you know, if you're looking to expand humanity out onto these other planets, and that's a whole other issue, you use the word colonize and that's a, that's a term fraught with issues. That, and days. I used it on purpose um, because it's not just um, going and visiting and coming back. I'm talking about a presence like in the expanse where we are out there doing things. Yeah. Yeah. 
and even even then, I mean, there's just the idea of of colonizers is a very Western specific uh, thing. And and when you colonize, you know, anytime there's ever been colonizers, it's never been that great for the indigenous population. But it turns out even going to Mars, where there's probably no life, say, uh, you know, certainly nothing advanced. Uh, it's all if there's anything there, it's probably very basic single cell stuff or whatever. Um, there's still issues with like, who do you bring with you? Who does this benefit? Who's, you know, there's all this stuff. And so I, you know, I, I try to avoid the years, use the term colonizing, but be that as it may, that's a, that's a tangent to what we're talking about. If you want to build a base on another planet or whatever, um, I don't see any real, uh, impossibilities there. It's not like trying to travel faster than light, which we think is physically impossible. These are just engineering problems and they are huge problems, mm, I, um, but they're not insurmountable. I, I'm sorry. I disagree. I think, you know? I think they're biological problems. I think that even if you did solve those things, even if you did get gravity set up, even if you did protect yourself from radiation, there's still this idea of the, what about your psychology? You know, who do you bring with you is incredibly important. Not just not anybody is going to be able to survive. But how do we know that sure. anybody doesn't go out there and, and basically lose their freaking mind at some point and you know just ruin the whole mission for everybody? I and see. so there's okay. That's a different. Well, question. no, it's about uh, all of it. It's about it's, can we survive? It's, in okay, space? yeah. It's a it's a different part of the big yes. question. Um, there are ways around that. Um, uh, there are, you know, we've learned a lot about this sort of psychology by going to Antarctica. There have been, um, you know, plenty, plenty of times where uh, ships have sailed, you know, 150, 200 years ago, whatever, across the Atlantic, and it took weeks. Now, the difference there is, you know, you could breathe the air. If you walk out on deck, you're not going to die. Um, but these are small groups of people confined in a small space for a long time. And a lot of the times the conditions were really terrible and, and uh, people were packed in like cattle. Other times it's just your crew and that's hard. Um, but the thing is, if you're going to go to say Mars, six month trip, uh, don't, you don't, you don't just send four people. You might do that at first for a short period of time. They could be there for six months. That's probably doable. But you know, look at what, look at what SpaceX is trying to do. They're trying to build a, a ship which takes 50 people at a time or more. Uh, and that sort of negates the problem before it even starts. So again, I'm not saying this is easy, <laughs> but if you could, I mean, we have the technology right now to build a spaceship that uses literally nuclear bombs as propulsion. Now it's hugely illegal and there's all sorts of problems <laughs> with it, but the thrust is so huge. It's called the Orion thrust. It is so huge that you could basically put a building on this thing and just launch it into space. And so you could take, you could take a thousand people and land them on Mars. So again, so I'm still going to argue this with you. This is this. Yes, it's psychology, but it's still at its heart. This is an engineering issue. Uh, and so, you know, it, it, and it depends on why you're doing this, how you're doing it. Uh, but it's I think in the end it's possible. And I think in the end it's, it's actually going to be inevitable. The question is, how are we going to do it and who's going to? Yeah, do it? Well, 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 I guess we're getting running out of time. So let me get your opinion on that. Who who do you think will do? Uh, and I guess let me, let me narrow the question down just a little bit. I've been following both Jeff Bezos and, and Elon Musk and, and Richard Branson, all these guys. And uh, I'm a big fan of the way Jeff Bezos is handling this whole thing. He's being very he's, he's much more interested in setting up uh, infrastructure first then then you know, getting getting all of the 
the boring stuff done and well understood before we start going to places like Mars. And I read a quote that he just said to Elon Musk about if you want to learn how to live on Mars, then or if you want to go to Mars, you try living on Mount Everest for a year. And, you know, he's got, I think, his I, I just feel like Jeff Bezos is the guy I'm going to I feel like he's got the best. I don't know. At, attitude toward this whole thing but what do you think do you think who's who's going to win who which which billionaire is going to get us out there yeah that's that's a whole other issue is, is billionaires yeah, running this, which is a, a matter of some concern um uh, uh especially given what we know about a lot of billionaires these days but um it's hard to say uh bezos is doing the sort of step-by-step he's very not methodical. big on uh self very methodical not big on on flash and uh, self promotion. Uh, they're doing a little more of that. I mean, for a long time, Blue Origin was known for saying we just did a suborbital launch. Uh, you know, whereas SpaceX is like everybody watch our webcast and and all that kind of thing. So it's very different. Um, but honestly, they're both they're, they're although they're approaching this differently, they're both making incredible progress. Uh, Blue Origin is is doing very well with these suborbital flights. Um, they're learning a huge amount and they're about to build an orbital rocket, the uh, New Glenn. Uh, the New Shepard is their suborbital. New Glenn is their orbital. They named them after the astronauts who did the first thing. So the first suborbital flight by an American was uh, was Alan Shepard. The first orbital flight was John Glenn. So it's the New Shepard, the New Glenn. They've announced that they, they, their plans are to build the New Armstrong. That's their I, next I big rocket. It's like, oh, huh. What are they going to do with that rocket? <laughs> yeah. I wonder. Um, and so, so clearly, you know, they're making these steps. On the other hand, Elon Musk and SpaceX uh, is is doing this is essentially doing the same thing, just a lot faster. Uh, and it's hard to say that what he's doing is wrong. Um, you know, the, SpaceX formed less than twenty years ago, uh, and they're about to launch people into space to the space station. Um, and it's, they, they, they're fully reusing their rockets. They're hugely pressuring, uh, the, uh, uh, older space companies, including, you know, the Russians and these other folks, uh, there's a lot of pressure on them to, to, to not just rest on their laurels and do things the way we used to do. So, you know, and this big rocket that they're planning, that's going to have a huge payload, uh, you know, I've. I, it seems silly, but I wouldn't bet against him. So I think it's a sucker's bet to say, <laughs> who's going to put people on the moon first? Who's going to go to Mars first? You know, you're 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 basically uh, one cracked fuel pump away from losing that race. So you know, I'm not going to bet on anybody. However, what I'm seeing is um, this can be done. It can be done profitably. It can be done uh, in the right in, in a manner that makes it easier. And I like that. I like this idea that we're going to go into space, um, and uh, you know, at the very least, that that may help protect us from asteroid impacts or any single event. There's a lot of a lot of research going into this that says it's hard to say exactly what this is going to do, and I, I need to read more about it. But it seems like that it's going to happen. The question, as you said, is who, and the answer is I don't know. <laughs> but I think it's going to be somebody. And that is not an answer I would have given 15, 20 years yeah. ago, but it's going to be it's definitely fun times, fun, fun, exciting times for right now for anybody interested in going into space. So yeah, in a good, good way. way. That's right. Yeah. Not, yeah. Not like that apocryphal curse. May you live in interesting <laughs> times. Oh, that's not really a Chinese curse. Um, 
that's been debunked. But in fact, we do live in interesting times, and I find it all that's very right. exciting. The golden age of astronomy and space travel, I think, is is very apt term. So, all right, guys. Well, I guess we better stop there. Um, Phil, thank you so much for taking time out to talk with us. You are awesome, and I am. I've been following you for years, and it's good to finally be able to just chat one on one with you. And it's just, I, I love it. Thank you for taking time out. Oh, my pleasure. I really appreciate you guys giving me the time to sit here and blather on about yeah, all this It's been stuff. a lot of fun. Okay. Well, uh, so Dustin, any final words? No, no, this has been exciting. It's uh, very, very interesting stuff and a lot that honestly I wouldn't have thought about, especially, you know, even going back to like the geopolitical implications of a lot of this, you know, I never think about it from that angle. So I think that's something you're very good at. Phil. Yeah, definitely. <laughs> well, thank you. You know, you know, if there's a take, thank you. If there's one takeaway from all of this, it's that people always say, why doesn't somebody just do this? And it's like, because it's complicated. Uh, you know, it's, 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 it's never just, I'm going to build a rocket in my backyard and launch it into space like Andy Griffith did in Salvage One for anybody out there above a certain age who remembers that show. I remember um, that. It's hard. I, rem- I do. do? I do. Okay. Yeah. Um, yeah. I did. This is, there's a reason they say this is rocket science, right? This is very complicated. It's very hard. Um, and the, the beauty of this is that we're, we're taking these steps. So we're, I think we're heading in the right direction. Yeah. And uh, one of the things I, w- I wish we could have gotten to, but I didn't get a chance. I wanted to talk to you about great filters and gamma ray bursts, but that's the topic of a whole nother podcast. I would imagine we got a lot of things we could talk about actually. Oh yeah. Podcast. Next time. So, yeah. So it's a whole universe out there, right? It, definitely. Well, thank you for, again, for taking time out. Hopefully you'll join us again. Uh, I guess today was Phil plate, the bad astronomer, check him out he's all over the place he's doing all kinds of wonderful things he's got uh your your main blog though is is bad astronomy right that's right it's on sci-fi.com s-y-f-y.com sci-fi.com and bad astronomy so definitely check it out folks okay on behalf of my guest phil plate and dustin gibson i want to thank you all so much for listening and as always keep looking up space junk was produced by opt telescopes in carlsbad california in partnership with deep astronomy Please send feedback and questions to spacejunk at deepastronomy.com.